This is March 29th, 2020. It's uh, last Tesho or talk in a month that none of us will ever forget. It was, it was earlier this month when the coronavirus really caught fire in the United States. Of course, before then, it already ravaged China and Italy and Iran. And uh, once again, I feel compelled to, to take the coronavirus as a topic uh, this morning. It is, I don't see how I cannot do that. So uh, I came up with uh, a text that I read from once uh, at the Madison Zen Center. It's uh, a book called The Active Life. And the subtitle is A Spirituality of Work, Creativity, and Caring. And the author is Parker J. Palmer. Uh, his name will be familiar to some of you, maybe many of you. Um, on the back of the book here, it says he's a highly respected writer, lecturer, teacher, and activist. <clears throat> uh, in 1998, a group called the Leadership Project, a group of 10,000 American educators, named him one of the 30 most influential senior leaders in higher education and one of the key, the 10 key agenda setters of the past decade. He's a, he's a Quaker and uh, I've always admired his writing. And this chapter from his book, uh, I think is, is exactly to the point of what the world is going through right now. I think in uh, in uh, my last Tay show and uh, John's uh, Dharma talk, uh, we both mentioned this as an opportunity, this this uh, breakdown of uh, business and uh, and this this isolation uh, as an opportunity to uh, appreciate. A whole different uh, rhythm, a contemplative rhythm, and uh, that's the name of this this chapter: the nature of contemplation. And uh, in it, he talks about three ways in which um, we have these these moments of opportunity that come to us. Uh, of course never on this scale in our lifetimes, uh, but still these moments of opportunity uh, that we can claim uh, for, let's say, our own evolution and the evolution of society and the world. <clears throat> and he mentions three um, three descriptors for what we're all going through now. Of course, let's see, this book was was written in uh, 
1990. So, so 30 years ago. Uh, and these are the three things he mentions. Disillusionment, dislocation, and unbidden solitude. Of course, uh, many of us now uh, have the opportunity, and it is an opportunity, to be disillusioned. And it's, it's something that we can welcome in Zen. In Zen practice, we want to lose our illusions. This is what he says. Many of us try hard to avoid such experiences of disillusion. And when we are in the midst of them, we go through a kind of dying. Yes, and that's so now. But the very name we give these moments tells us that something positive is happening through our pain. We say we are being disillusioned. That is, we are being stripped of some illusions about life, about others, about ourselves, as our illusions are removed, like barriers on a road, we have a chance to take that road farther toward truth. Instead of commiserating and offering a shoulder to cry on when a friend says that he or she is disillusioned, we ought to congratulate, celebrate, and ask the friend how we can help the process go deeper still. Pain he says, is one of the sure signs that contemplation is happening. Contemplation may lead eventually to bliss, but first it will give us the pain of knowing that some of our dearest convictions are shallow, inadequate, wrong. Contemplation first deprives us of familiar comforts. Then it replaces them with an inner emptiness in which new truth often alien and unsettling truth, can emerge. The contemplative journey from illusion to reality may have peace as its destination, but en route, it usually passes through some fearsome places. Just to go back over this sentence, contemplation first deprives us of familiar comforts. So many comforts we've had to give up. I mentioned this in uh, my little podcast uh, last week, uh, all of the ways that we can find comfort, places to go, people to see, things to do. We don't have those now. We have other, we do have some comforts left at home, uh, in our, in our homes, whatever those may be. Um, but we don't have most of the ones we usually, most of us usually count on. Then he says, <clears throat> he takes the next one. After disillusionment, he goes to dislocation. This happens when we are forced by circumstance to occupy a very different standpoint from our normal one 
and our angle of vision suddenly changes to reveal a strange and threatening landscape. I think, for example, of the man who lives 40 years in perfect health until one day the doctor tells him he has terminal cancer. I think of the woman who has held the same job for 30 years until an overnight corporate takeover leaves her unemployed at age 58. I think of the person finally forced to admit that alcohol has made life so unbearable that only the, the only choice is to change or to die. He continues, the value of dislocation, like the value of disillusionment, is in the way that it moves us beyond illusion, so we can see reality in the round, since what we are able to see depends entirely on where we stand. Standing in the middle of a field, it is easy to imagine that the earth is flat. Standing on the moon and looking back at our planet, we can see more clearly what her true form is. So in, in, in more Buddhist terms, uh, our experience of reality, what we see, the way we see reality is based on perception. And perception is a function of the mind. This is why meditation is arguably, I would submit that meditation is the most intelligent thing that anyone can do because it, it offers a way to change the mind so that we can see things differently. But it also works from the outside. So now in this, in this ex unbelievable time of dislocation, we are all forced to see things differently. <sighs> to take a very superficial example, here I am sitting on the floor in my quarters at the Zen Center, uh, the conference room, uh, in a very different environment than I'm used to talking to the Sangha. I have a microphone on a stand propped on a chair. Uh, in front of the chair is a cardboard box. Um, and uh, when we have to adapt to different things, when we have to discard our routines, our, our habitual way of doing thing, things, uh, then we, it's, it's exciting. It's exciting uh, and a very safe kind of example like this. But of course, there are very frightening uh, ways in which millions, hundreds of millions Billions, maybe billions of people now uh, in the month of March and going forward have been dislocated, and it's not as safe as in other circumstances.
He continues with uh, dislocation. Of course, contemplation that comes through dislocation is likely to leave us lonely. Others often do not share our dislocated view of things, and sometimes they are threatened by our new truth. I once heard the story of a medieval Irish monk who died and was buried, as was the custom, in the monastery wall. One day the monks heard noises from within the wall and removed the stones to find their brother alive and well. He began to tell them what he had learned on his journey beyond, and everything he said was contrary to the teachings of the church. So the brothers put him back in the wall and sealed the crypt forever. You know, when I read this uh, section of, of uh, Parker Palmer's chapter, uh, I thought of uh, a koan uh, and in, a, in the Mumon Khan, number 15, Tozan and 60 Blows. Um, I'll just read the beginning of the case, or maybe the whole case. Tozan came to see Ummon and was asked by him, where have you come from? From Sado, he replied. Where were you during the summer Ango? I was at Hozu Temple in Konan Province, replied Tozan. When did you leave there? On the 25th of August. Umon burst out, I spare you 60 blows. Or in other words, I ought to give you 60 blows, but you don't, you're not even worth it. Here we can imagine that Umon, as the great master that he was, um, was hoping that he could dislocate Tozan when he first came to him, when Tozan came to Umon. Where have you come from? Where were you? What, what's the date that you left? In other words, uh, he was trying to shake him loose of all these time, space, uh, this matrix that not just Tozan, but all of us really rely on in our daily lives. But Tozan wasn't ready. He just clung to that ordinary, conventional way of relating to his, his place in the world. I was, I was there, I was there, and for that long. And then Umon gave it to him. I'll, I'll read the rest of the case. The next day, Tozan came again before Umon and said, Yesterday you said I should receive 60 blows. I don't know where my fault was. Umon said, You rice bag, why do you wander about, now west of the river, now south of the lake? And at this, Tozan was enlightened. Now, in, in the commentary, we are offered a glimpse uh, into what Tozan went through that night after his first encounter, his first blistering encounter with Ummon. It says, All night Tozan struggled in a sea of yes and no. 
When long-awaited dawn broke, again he went to Umon, who helped him open his eyes. So, in a way, Umon did manage to dislocate Tozan with that first um, outburst of his uh, reproaching uh, Tozan. And because of that dislocation, um, Tozan was left wide open. And that set him up for insight. That's the precondition of awakening. We have to be disoriented. We have to lose our our cognitive bearings. Just, just not permanently, of course, but temporarily. And that we call samadhi. We lose ourselves. We're free of the self. And this is the opportunity we all have now to some degree as I said last week, we are in a, most of us are in a, 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 a kind of state of suspension. Driving through the fog. Or as uh, Meister Eckhart, the great Christian mystic, put it, going, going, one knows not where, by a road one knows not of. This is Zen meditation at its richest, most fertile. And we can manage to let go of all the, the context of the self, the I, the me, and the my. I found this uh, wonderful quote uh, from uh, a mystic a sage by the name of Adyashanti. It sounds Indian, so uh, let's say that that's what she or he is. Uh, I didn't have a chance this morning scrambling around uh, to set up my little <laughs> my little Tesho niche here to find out who he was or she, but this is what. He or she said, meditation is not a technique to master. It is the highest form of prayer, a naked act of love and effortless surrender into the silent abyss of not knowing. Well, that's, <clears throat> that's Zazen at its richest for most people, most of the time, it's, it's more a matter of just trying to detach from thoughts. That is, trying to get to this place of surrender, of not knowing. So it takes practice. It's hard. We've relied our whole lives on knowing 
on our conceptual structures and templates, it's not easy to give that up. Uh, then we have each of us a practice uh, that's been proven over centuries uh, to help us do exactly that detaching from thoughts, whether it's the breath, the koan, shikantaza. And now, the third, after disillusionment and dislocation, he goes on and says, that story, referring to the story of the Irish monks, that story suggests one more way that life draws us into accidental contemplation, the way of unbidden solitude. Some of us find it is hard to choose solitude it is as hard to choose solitude as it is to choose dislocation or disillusionment because solitude removes us from the collective life that often reinforces our comforting illusions. Think of that. Think of that sentence in terms of what we're going through now. Solitude removes us from the collective life that often, not always, but often reinforces our comforting illusions. But life sends many moments when the group excludes us willy-nilly. Moments when we say or feel or do something that the group does not want to deal with. Moments when we are forced to find our way without collective support. In these moments, we once again have the chance to penetrate illusion and touch reality. Um, I think of... Uh, of how many of us had to make this leap from the expectations or norms of our social groups, our family, and their and and uh, and move into this realm, this journey, spiritual journey, and how how off-putting or even threatening that can be uh, to the family or friends or others uh, who haven't reached that point yet and how we we risk losing them it's i think it seldom works out that way um, if uh if one goes home to one's partner or family or friends and says, I'm taking up the practice of meditation. I think I need to get serious about this. There can be an initial reaction on the part of those others um, because people fear change. They don't want their friend or brother or sister or parent or child to change. Why would we not want to change? But that's the way we are. It's the way people are. We want to hold on to things and people as we understand them. But I think in most cases, after that initial reaction on the part of the, the non-meditator, uh, they come around, they see 
that whatever change we go through, whatever change the new meditator goes through is better, is good, and even helpful to uh, the, the family or friends. Just a little more here from uh, Parker Palmer. Solitude is a painful condition at first, as are disillusionment and dislocation. But unlike those two, solitude is something that sometimes grows on people. There is a reason for this. Disillusionment and dislocation are temporary conditions, passages we must make in order to move beyond illusion and live in truth. But involuntary solitude is the permanent truth of our lives. We are born in solitude, we die in solitude, and we have opportunities to learn to live creatively with that fact in the years between birth and death. The fruit of disillusionment and dislocation is the capacity to enter and enjoy our solitude. Compelled by the painful grace of a life process that is bent on helping us to get real. The fruit of disillusionment and dislocation is the capacity to enter and enjoy our solitude. That's the opportunity we have now in our social distancing. Somewhere in this chapter, uh, Parker Palmer acknowledges that uh, he doesn't have any kind of formal meditative practice. I just toss that out for, for what it's worth. Now I'm going to set aside this book and turn to uh, a very thought-provoking uh, article from Politico magazine. And uh, this is uh, dated March 20th, uh, nine days ago. And it's called, Coronavirus Will Change the World Permanently. Here's How. And what it is is... Uh, uh, the the authors or the the editors uh, asked some thirty or thirty five um, deep thinkers or long thinkers I can't remember the exact word to suggest how they see we might the world might change uh, cer certainly our country might change. And I'm going to go through some of these. I don't have time to uh, read even half of them uh, or even mention half of them. Um, but they start with uh, Deborah Tannen. She's a professor of linguistics at Georgetown University. She's read, written some wonderful books on language and relationships, the way, uh, the different ways that men and women 
talk or understand things. And what she suggested is that we're, we're, we're experiencing now a loss of innocence or complacency. You know, as Americans, North Americans, we could say we've, we've had, for the most part, we've had a very, very privileged existence with oceans on either side of us and friendly neighbors north and south of us. We, we have, compared to other countries, I think it's fair to say that we have lived lives of great prosperity and privilege and ease and comfort where we haven't had to face some of the terrible suffering that a lot of other countries have had to face, not just countries, but peoples, even before nation states, what peoples have had to face all around the world. Of course, we had our civil war, uh, the only real war fought on our, on our soil besides uh, the War of 1812, just a little bit. But the civil war was, of course, unspeakable suffering. But even there, it was just within our own country. She, uh, she talks about the comfort of being, she was saying that the comfort of being in the presence of others might be replaced by a greater comfort with absence. That we're, it seems that's what we're kind of forced to it's a change we're forced to make now. We have to find some comfort with being away from people. Safety. She says that online communication creates more distance, but also more connection as we communicate more often with people who are physically farther away and who feel safer because of that distance. Well, that's the dislocation part, uh, our social distancing. The dis disillusionment um, aspect of her, her contribution uh, is that we, we, we have had all kinds of illusions shattered now about our own safety, uh, the safety of our country that we have enjoyed for so long, um, our immense, immense military might, where we have generation after generation, we have uh, lived without any real fear. There was, there was the Cold War fear but of the, of the bomb, but without any real fear of, of uh, our security, uh, our physical security. And now we have to face that we are vulnerable in a massive scale. The, another of the, uh, the contributors to this piece on how we're gonna change uh, is a Mark Lawrence Shrad. He's a, an associate professor of political science and what he's expecting we'll see is a new kind of patriotism. 
I'll read just his because it's so well put. America has long equated patriotism with the armed forces, but you can't shoot a virus. Those on the front lines against coronavirus aren't conscripts, mercenaries, or enlisted men. They are our doctors, nurses, pharmacists, teachers, caregivers, store clerks, utility workers, small business owners and employees. Many of these people are suddenly saddled with unfathomable tasks, compounded by an increased risk of contamination and death they never signed up for. He continues, when all is said and done, perhaps we will recognize their sacrifice as true patriotism, saluting our doctors and nurses, genuflecting and saying thank you for your service as we now do for military veterans. We will give them guaranteed health benefits and corporate discounts and build statues and have holidays for this new class of people who sacrifice their health and their lives for ours. Perhaps, too, we will finally start to understand patriotism more as cultivating the health and life of your community rather than blowing up someone else's community. Maybe the demilitarization of American patriotism and love of community will be one of the benefits to come out of this whole awful mess. It's a wonderful thought. Wonderful. It's, uh, it's maybe idealistic, but who knows? Who knows anything right now? Who knows how this pandemic will change any of us? Who knows how it will change all of us? It's kind of exciting. Not knowing. We've never been in this position before, any of us. So completely dislocated. And then a few others, uh, a Peter T. Coleman, professor of psychology at Columbia University, um, who, who studies intractable conflict. Uh, he's, he's hoping for a decline in polarization um, for two reasons. One, that we now have a common enemy that will bring people together. It really is absolutely astonishing how quickly the, the Congress uh, pulled together the largest expenditure of one bill ever in our national history. Of course, there were a lot of, a lot of uh, <clears throat> hair pulling uh, between Democrats and Republicans uh, behind the scenes, but still And then a second reason he's hoping for a decline, there may be a decline in polarization, is because of this, this pandemic being a political shockwave. And this is what he says. Studies have shown that strong, enduring relational patterns, so for example, the um, conflict between uh, conservatives and liberals or Democrats and, and Republicans, that 
strong, enduring, strong, enduring relational patterns often become more susceptible to change after some type of major shock destabilizes them. He acknowledges this may not be right away, but he says a study of hundreds of interstate conflicts from 1816 to 1992, so over a hundred years, well over a hundred years, uh, more like 200 years, that study of interstate, interstate conflicts, more than 75% of them ended within 10 years. That is, within 10 years of a major destabilizing shock. So he acknowledges that those, those um, relational patterns, those enduring relational patterns, uh, the change can be for better or for worse. But still, there it is, the possibility of a decline in polarization. And then another, now I'm just not even, didn't even write down the authors of the, the contributors. Another uh, suggestion was that um, we, can, we might be able to return to faith in serious experts. This may leave us uh, aware that expertise matters. Uh, it's been alarming to see how uh, the expertise um, has been, uh, experts have been uh, dismissed in the last three and a half years um, and uh, sus suspicions about experts and who are often equated with the elite. And, and, not, and experts not only in science, but uh, that the pandemic may return us to a new seriousness in government, where we get people in the federal government at the highest levels uh, who are not just party loyalists, but who really know what they're doing. Let's hope. Who knows? In the disillusionment in this case, uh, in, in terms of this, uh, this prediction or this suggestion, uh, would be a, a disillusionment with those who reject experts, who dismiss, who belittle experts. And related to that, there was another contribution uh, of uh, how this might leave science back in its proper place as, as uh, being respected, science, and which could be understood in its own kind of disillusionment. That is, the the restoration of science and the value of science can be seen as a disillusionment with superstition, disillusionment with conspiracy theories. I'm relating, of course, these different uh, suggestions of how the changes, changes might happen to uh, Parker Palmer's three big things, uh, disillusionment, dislocation, and unbidden solitude. Here's one by an Eric Kleinenberg, who uh, I read from, I think, just two or three weeks ago. Uh, I think he wrote the thing about Alaska, the Alaska earthquake of 1964. And his, his 
prediction is that there may be less individualism. And he says the end of our romance with market society and hyper-individualism. He acknowledges that this could lead to um, more authoritarianism, but instead he's hoping it would lead to an investment in public goods and public services. I would see this as just finding some some greater balance between the, the public and the private. You can't help but, but conclude from China's way of dealing with the pandemic and our way of dealing with a pandemic that we have gone too far toward individualistic, um, well, executive power, perhaps we could say, but that the the East Asians, and this, I think this is a fair generalization from the books I've read about the differences between Asians and, and Westerners, the East Asians are more likely to respect um, government, respect uh, the collective rather than individual. Others, looking to others. I remember being in Japan and being struck by how many uh, just ordinary citizens uh, would wear masks. So this is a long. This is a long time ago, uh, and uh, I heard that they're wearing masks for others' sake. The way now we need to do that. Uh, there's another another contributor uh, suggests that that religious worship will look different. Ha <laughs> ha! Yes, here we are. She makes the point. This is Amy Sullivan, director of strategy for Vote Common Good. She makes the point that all faiths have dealt with the challenge of keeping faith alive under the adverse conditions of war or diaspora or persecution, but never all faiths at the same time, as we're seeing now. Again, dislocation. Here we are, connecting only through audio equipment. I felt dislocation again this morning when I was all set to go here and I realized that I don't know when I should start this taste show exactly. So I scampered over through the link, not touching anything, of course, oh God, no, running through the link to the Zendo to make sure that keen heat had ended so that I would be ready, they, people would be ready for me to start this. Well, that's quite a tangent, wasn't it? And then a, a writer for the Atlantic by the name of Jonathan Rausch uh, is, sees that we're going to, we may see new forms of reform. He makes the point that plagues drive change. And as an example, he cites the HIV AIDS crisis was a, was a transformational epidemic that mobilized gay Americans to building organizations 
networks, and know-how that changed their place in society. He said it also revealed deadly flaws in our health care system and awakened them to the need for the protection of marriage. And he says we're, also, we're already finding new ways to connect and support one another in adversity. And then quickly, a few others, a contributor said this could lead to a healthier digital lifestyle. Another said this could lead to an opening for stronger family care. Another said, yes, that science can be restored, the respect for science. And that may be one of the silver linings in this horrid, horrid pandemic is that with, if we more people find respect for science, it may lead to res- respect for the threat of climate change, which could save our whole planet. Wouldn't that be something if the, the crisis that threatens our whole planet right now, the virus, if we can survive it, then can enable us to galvanize our resources uh, in a new way to fight climate change, global warming. Another suggestion uh, is that this could leave us with revived trust in institutions, trust in, in, in those entrusted with protecting our health, preserving our liberties, and overseeing our national security. Again, with with staff and experts, uh, or staffing uh, these institutions with experts and not just political loyalists. This author says, this contributor says, the decisions need to be made through a reasoned policy process and predicated on evidence-based science and and history and, excuse me, predicated on evidence-based science and historical and geopolitical knowledge, multicultural, multilateral diplomacy, cooperation with allies. Boy, wouldn't that be a refreshing change. Another contributor suggests we could see a political uprising. Another suggests that we could see more constraints on mass consumption. Another, the inequality gap will widen. That's a little frightening. It's pretty wide right now. That could lead to a disillusionment with our capitalist system. I just have to just say as a a side comment, uh, I think this debate about capitalism versus socialism is meaningless apart from a discussion of the nature of human beings. That the ism is an abstraction. The question is how, the question is the, the nature, the character of the human beings who function in a in a capitalist society or socialist society not which ism it is 
And that, of course, the character of the people uh, leads us to spiritual practice and purifying the mind and the heart so that whether it's capitalism or socialism, uh, it can work for the common good. Our time is up now. We'll stop and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain.